Our first question says, some in my church are questioning our traditional understanding of the Trinity, specifically the Holy Spirit being a separate identity. I watched a sermon teaching the first angel's message is, uh, first angel's message is critically important understanding the Trinity. This pastor was heavily insisting that Christ was created by God and that Holy Spirit is simply a manifestation of God and Jesus, first, uh, Jesus' life force. Please help me understand. Uh, I encourage you to go to our website and type in Trinity. I've written a couple of extensive blogs going through the history, going through the references, going through the biblical evidence um, from multiple different angles that actually answer this question in detail that would take probably 30 minutes to go through here. So I would encourage you to do that. I would tell you, however, these attacks are not, um, not surprising. Satan's initial goal after the fall, once the Genesis 3.15 promise was made, was to stop Jesus from coming to be the Savior. And the whole Old Testament narrative is the narrative of trying to interfere with, with Jesus being born um, of a woman in this planet and, and, and to be our Savior. If Jesus doesn't come, then, then he holds on to this planet. And so that's the whole Old Testament narrative, the working out, God's working out of the plan of salvation by bringing Jesus at the right time to be our Savior and Satan working to try to destroy the, the branch of the human family through which Jesus would come. After Jesus came, successfully completed his mission, rose into heaven, his next strategy is to impair or, or obstruct the application of what Jesus achieved in the lives of people. He can't ultimately win the war now. He can only limit the impact of Jesus' victory in individual lives. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit that takes the achievements of Christ and makes them real in individual lives. And this is what Jesus said, it's expedient for you that I go. If I don't go, the comforter won't come. The, uh, and when the comforter comes, he will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. And, well, who is the comforter listening to? He's listening to Jesus. Jesus, when he became incarnate, surrendered his personal omni, um, omnipresence. Prior, he, as part of the Godhead, was present everywhere all the time himself. But when he became human, he didn't, he didn't pretend to be human. He didn't get loaned to humanity for 30 years. He became a human being and retained his humanity, which has given up a permanent sacrifice of omnipresence. And now he is not here in his personal presence, but the Holy Spirit is his representative on earth, taking the victory of Christ, working on our hearts. And so Jesus pleads. What's he pleading? Not to the Father. He's pleading to people. I died for you. I love you. I'm your savior. I'm your physician. I can heal you. And the Holy Spirit brings those pleads to hearts and minds to win us, to convert us. And so so Satan works to undermine the work of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit not only convicts us of sin, brings us to conversion. The Holy Spirit is the agency that comes with divine power to empower us to live victoriously. And so it's not surprising that the Trinity comes under attack. I don't think a person necessarily has to have cognitive acknowledgement of the Trinity to be saved, but they have to um, ex- experience the Holy Spirit working on their heart, whether they acknowledge that working or not, but they have to have that because there's no healing remedy without the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. But anyway, I'd encourage you to read those blogs. Shouldn't the 20 plus instances of Pharaoh's heart hardening in Exodus be changed to the same words translated elsewhere 385 times to some hearts melting into pure gold and others hardening stiff leather from the same radiance? Uh, You know, I think I've answered that in several blogs. I've answered it last week that uh, the process of how heart becomes hardened, and, that, and that's why the Bible says it in three different ways regarding Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and then Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It says it all three ways, because the way a heart is hardened is that God presents truth and leaves people free. If, and when truth is presented to any heart, 
the individual has to make a choice, accept the truth, and every truth that you accept and apply softens your heart, transforms your heart, and leads you in the path of righteousness. Every truth you deny and reject, you, be, you become hardened. And so Pharaoh had truth brought to him over and over again, and he rejected it over and over again. Had God not brought the truth, his heart would not have gotten as hard. But the hardening came when Pharaoh hardened it, and when Pharaoh rejected the truth. And you say, well, why would God do it if he knew? Because the only way that Pharaoh could have a chance at salvation was a presentation of the truth. And God loved him too much not to give him that opportunity, but Pharaoh rejected it. So I don't, I don't get much you know, um, from the idea of, of how the word was translated. It's really contextual in the meaning as we've gone through. Please explain why you say we hide behind a covering of some type. What about Zechariah's statement about God covering us in a righteous covering? So I don't say we hide behind a covering. I say part of the misrepresentation of these beautiful metaphors Mm -hmm. is that people teach that our sin is covered or we hide behind a robe of righteousness so when the Father looks at us, he can't see our wickedness. This is how it's taught. I don't teach that. I think that's the fraudulent teaching. And there's multiple ways people uh, teach hiding from God. An intercessor that stands between us, a robe that covers us, blood that erases records, uh, all types of things that are designed to hide us or protect us from God. I don't teach that. I teach reality. And these metaphors teach a beautiful reality in the design law view. And one of the founders of the Adventist church, if I can find this. Yeah, here it is. Uh, These are three different quotes Um, from Ellen White, about what this metaphor actually means. Christ Object Lessons 311. When we submit ourselves to Christ, the heart is united with his heart. The will is merged with his will. The mind becomes one with his mind. Notice what's happening here. Where's where's action taking place? Inside the heart and mind of the believer. The thoughts are brought into captivity to him. We live his life. This is what it means to be clothed in the garment of his righteousness. That's what the Zechariah prophecy is talking about. Take away his filthy garments, which are symbolic of his filthy character, and dress him in um, righteous garments, which are symbolic of our thoughts, mind becoming renewed and reborn in holiness, that we actually become holy people. Two other quotes that I thought were quite interesting. One is uh, First Sermons and Talks, page 237, and it says, The righteousness of God never covers a soul all polluted with sin. It can be much more plain than that. And then, Signs of the Times, April 4, 1892. Christ does not clothe sin with his righteousness, but he removes the sin, and and in its place, he imputes his own righteousness. I mean, this is what we teach. This is healing. It's like we don't go to somebody dying of metastatic cancer and cover over their cancer and declare them to be cancer-free while they're still eating up with cancer. That's stupid. That's what the penal legal substitutionary model teaches, that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, that he declares you to be righteous because you're covered in a robe of righteousness and God can't see your wickedness, but you still remain wicked. It's a lie. It's a fraud. It's a powerless Christianity. It's what P- Paul wrote to Peter and said, that in the end of time, all these horrible things will be, just terrible, terrible stuff. They will have a form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. That's penal substitution theology. Let's say, I'm going to let you all answer this one, so be, be ready. Listen carefully. The answer comes from you all. If we pay our tithe and all our bills and we can afford it and not go into debt over it, is it wrong 
to like and want to buy designer items. They're looking for rules. What do the rules say? When, and I'm going to tell you there's no rule on a question like this. It's all about principles. It's all about principles. How would this acquisition impact the rest of their life? As well? How would the acquisition impact the rest of their life? What, uh, what is the actual usefulness of the object? Uh, I can potentially see a designer object having better functionality and better use in the circumstance for a person than a non-designer object. I mean, a Yeti is better than others, right? <laughs> is it not? Okay. So, um, yeah. So every person be fully persuaded in their own mind. Based on Ellen White's many counsels on not using caffeine... Why do you advise in your aging brain book to use it? Quote from Councils on Diets and Foods, page 430. Here's the quote. All should bear a clear testimony against tea and coffee, never using them. They are narcotics, injurious alike to the brain and to the other organs of the body, unquote. So here's a quote. Now, before I answer this question, are we reasoning and thinking or are we approaching this as an external authority has spoken? Who are we to question? Okay, we have a quote from Ellen White. Ellen White has said it. That settles it. That's all there is to it. No questions asked. Or, I'm going to answer this question, folks. Some some people listening might be very uncomfortable. So before I answer it, I have to set it in another setting so maybe you'll be more comfortable. And what they get uncomfortable about is the fact that they've offloaded their own responsibility for understanding to an authority, and they just take the rules that that authority says. And if you question any of the rules, then, then if this one's not right, then, then all the other ones I'm doing might not be right either. How am I supposed to know? Okay? So if you were a, a, a Christian in the apostolic church, that first church, first century, 50 AD, 20 years since Christ rose, and Peter, the apostle Peter, comes along and is modeling not associating with circumcised, the uncircumcised fellows, would you say, who are we to question him? He's the apostle. He's inspired. He's been special privileged of being trained by Jesus himself. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. He's writing, writing inspired books of the Bible, and only a holy men of God moved by the Spirit can write the Bible, and he's written two books of the Bible. Who are we to question the apostle Peter when he doesn't want to associate with these uncircumcised fellows? Would you question or would you just go along because he's the apostle? Well, Paul fortunately questioned him and confronted him publicly and told him he was wrong. Yes or no? Am I everybody with me here? Yes. Now, he was wrong on this issue. Does that mean he's no longer an apostle? He's no longer inspired? We shouldn't trust the books he wrote? Okay. Get your mind around this idea of, of inspiration. Many people think that if you have somebody who you believe has inspiration, special inspiration from the Lord that they somehow are flawless beings now. They're not. They're human beings that still make mistakes. And even when you read their writings, you're still required to think it through for yourself. So in this quote, she's made a mistake. She's actually wrong. What does she say? That tea and, and coffee are narcotics. Okay, well, as a physician, I immediately go, okay, that's not right. Let me look up what narcotics are, just to be sure. Maybe I'm overlooking. Maybe the definition I've only has a partial definition. Maybe it's not the full definition. And so this definition of narcotics, uh, in, our, in our current dictionary, it's any of a class of substances that blunt the senses, as opium, morphine, belladonna, marijuana, alcohol, that in large quantities produce euphoria, stupor, or coma, 
that when used constantly can cause habituation and addiction, and they're used in medicine to relieve pain, cause sedation, and induce sleep. I said, well, okay, words change meaning. Maybe that's not what it meant when she used it in the 19th century. So I, I got a Webster's Dictionary of 1828. <laughs> and this is the definition of a narcotic in 1828, which would have been available for her to use in her day. A medicine which stupefies and the senses and renders insensible to pain, hence a medicine which induces sleep, a sopophoric, an opiate. That was a narcotic in her day. Was coffee and tea made differently back then? It was a long time ago. So I did not look up whether coffee and tea were being laced with opiates in her day, because if coffee and tea sold on the market were also laced with fentanyl, opiate, opium, then certain laudanum, then certainly that would be a narcotic then, okay? So if that's what was happening, then that's right. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that, okay? That's a hypothetical just put out to try to find... And the reason that was thrown out is we want to believe she wasn't wrong. So let's find a reason why it wasn't, it's right. Well, maybe they were putting opiates in the coffee and tea back then because we don't want this to be wrong. Well, from 1922, cocaine was considered a narcotic. That's right. Onwards. Before it wasn't. So I think it's just a question of nuance. Like, it's not, it's like arbitrary, really. So, from here so again, um, yeah. some, some people will use the term narcotic to mean anything that is potentially addictive. Yes. But that is not the terminology from the dictionary of her day. It's not the, uh, and, and some people today will, will include cocaine, amphetamines, under the classification of narcotics in the legal justice system, not in the medical system. It's only included, when they, when they call it narcotic today, it's over-regulation elements, not physiological application. So yes, legal justice systems will, will classify it under the classification of narcotics, these addicting stimulants. But medical providers never consider stimulants narcotics. Because, because I just read to you what narcotics do. Stimulants don't do that. Okay, so we make a distinction functionally. We call them narcotics and stimulants. Okay, and so in her day, she's making a medical, not a legal application. So even if we allow for the legal definition, sometimes doing it because of addiction purposes, she is, she is making a medical application here. So, uh, so, so first question is, she's wrong in calling them narcotics by the definitions of her own day. Sec, uh, they don't stupefy, they don't numb, they don't put to sleep. Um, they actually make more alert. And then, the, and then the data shows that, and so if you read my book, so that's the first thing. Secondly, in my book, I describe um, the coffee and the, and the tea being used should be a, approached as a medicinal, as a medicinal. Yeah. I say that in my book. Uh, meaning that if you have certain medical conditions, you shouldn't do it. If it causes you any medical-related problems, you shouldn't do it. You have seizure disorders, certain uh, vascular disorders. And if it interferes with normal sleep, you shouldn't use it because sleep is more important. Than, but if you can drink a couple cups of this a day and not have any medical consequences or negative sleep problems, then you actually have health-promoting benefits from these substances. And you reduce your risk of Alzheimer's disease. You could be crucified. Okay. No, no, I, this is in my book. And it's science. And I will tell you what this, Ellen White would agree with me. She says you shouldn't use opiates and, and these other things. So anybody who, uh, well, assault forks, opiates, narcotics, things that stupefy and, and, and put you to sleep. So anybody going for a hip surgery, tell them you don't want any, anything to put you to sleep. Okay? Because Ellen White says you can't take anything that slows your brain down and puts you to sleep. That's a rule. No, she would have never said that. She's talking about daily use to compromise your daily operations, not in circumstances that it actually reduces the damage to you. I will tell you in her day, if it was uh, during the Civil War, 
I don't know if you know this, but there were occasions when somebody uh, was traumatized by the war and the, and the surgeons had to do amputations in the field and the only thing they had to deal with them was alcohol and they would dr- get them drunk till they passed out so they could cut off the limb. Should they, if that happened, should, should they go, well, I read the writings of Sister White and she says, don't drink alcohol, just cut my limb off anyway. No, this is being used as a medicinal. And so many people read these as rules and they never actually reason through the principle behind the rules. And it's a daily use of something that undermines cognitive performance and stupefies the mind and undermines your autonomy. And that's what she's against. It's damaging to us and we don't want that. It ruins our health. Okay, next question. We're going to go on. Why did King David on his deathbed instruct his son to revenge for him to, get, to, to not let Joab die a natural death and to not let Shimei go unpunished. With David, so, uh, with David called, when David called on God for forgiveness in Psalms, but he himself cannot forgive others, with wisdom Solomon acquired from God, he still executes his dad's last wishes. What uh, should we learn from this? Be unforgiving because we are only flesh? Follow your earthly parents' instructions over God's instructions? This is a great question. And why is it a great question? Because it shows the problem of trying to read a Bible story and apply limited contextual understanding to what's going on. You have to actually, if you want to know the answer to this, you have to read the entire history of, of these people in the Old Testament, David's relationship with them, and then understand the function and position of David's words and Solomon's. First off, Joab did a bunch of treacherous and criminal things that David, as king, was unable to hold him accountable for. And Shimei was basically a a traitor to the nation, undermining the sovereignty of the rulership. And so David is not speaking as an individual who's been personally offended. He's speaking as a sovereign uh, in a wicked world, enforcing the judicial system to maintain order and prevent the nation from being undermined by rebels within within the nation. This is the this is all that's going on here. So these two people are criminals, and you, as the, new, as the new sovereign head of the legal justice system, if you don't want everyone else in the nation to go into rebellious living and undermine your rule, you need to hold these guys accountable for their crimes and set a precedent that people will know that you are a fair and just ruler in the, in the way the earthly systems run. That's what this is about. Quite a few questions come, have come to mind as I ponder what to say to my friends about the beautiful belief of the first death not being so terrible because it's not the second death. Uh, does the great white throne judgment happen in heaven or in the sky on Jesus' way back to earth at the end of the thousand years? Is that throne inside the actual New Jerusalem uh, city that has its gates wide open coming out from heaven? Why is there a great white throne? Is it literal or metaphorical like many other, uh, other things in, in Revelation? So the only place you'll find the great white throne is in Revelation chapter 20. And which I will go to right now. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. 
It's the only place in Scripture you have this, this reference. It says, then I saw, and this is, if you remember Revelation 20, a thousand years were over, Satan will be released from his prison, blah, 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 blah. Okay, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done, according to the books and so forth. We describe this in in the four judgments. So I would encourage you to go to our website and type in four judgments. Uh, This is the judgment that happens after the thousand years, after the wicked dead are raised. This is the judgment in which basically reality, God stops using his power to restrain his life-giving glory and he allows the infinite beams of truth and love to flow over the land again. And if you read uh, in, and you can go to our series, The Power of Love Training and Equipping Course, and there is a um, talk on this, on the judgments, and at the end, if you value the great controversy, Ellen White describes at the end of the thousand years when the um, wicked dead are raised that the great army forms and they build implements of war for a period of time. The gates of the New Jerusalem are open this entire time. And when they march in mass on the city, the voice of Jesus is heard, close the gates. That's the first time the gates are closed. And as they march upon the city, Jesus rises up on his throne above the city and fire comes out from Jesus into the city and out through the gates. Now, who's in the city? The righteous. The righteous get hit by the fire first. Why? Because it's a, it's, you read about this in Daniel chapter 7 or 9, 7 or 9, I can't remember off the top of my head, where the Ancient of Days takes his throne and rivers of fire come out from before him and 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands stand in this fire. This is the fire of God's life giving glory. It is not the fire of combustion. This is the fire that consumes sin. And God has been shielding all sinners from this life-giving glory because truth burns out lies and love burns out fear and selfishness. And those who have solidified their hearts and minds on lies and fears and selfishness, when they come in the presence of infinite truth and love, they will be tormented not by love and truth, but by the unremedied wickedness that still resides in them. And they beg for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from him who sits on the throne. So this is what happens at the end of the thousand years. And that's when the great white throne judgment happens. It's not judicial it's reality-based. And that judgment is primarily for all the righteous to be able to see that God does not use power to harm the wicked, that God, in fact, has been using power to protect them from their own choices. Yes? For the people who believe that, that in order to be fair, God has to really physically torture the wicked before they finally die. Um, I was, <coughs> I've been thinking about this. I mean, which torture is worse? You physically getting tortured or you emotionally getting tortured? Like if it's your child being tortured in front of you, for example, that's worse than if it was happening to you. Mm. And so um, there are people who feel like that God is letting people off, bad people off lightly by not torturing them. And so they have to believe in the penal legal the root to that is the same root. They, the root to that is they don't understand reality. They don't understand design law. They think God's law is simply a system of rules and justice requires enforcement. So the, they, I promise you, there's not one person I know that, that thinks the way you think and understands God's laws as a design law. They all think God's laws are made up of rules that require enforcement. They do, but you're right. That, that you're right in your observation, but you're moving it away from, from the landscape in which they work. And they might hear that, yes, there's emotional pain too, but justice still requires enforcement. 
They'll come right back. They'll hear that. Yes, of course, of course, Jesus suffered more in his, in his emotions than he did in his body, we're told. But, uh, but, but they'll come right back around to it, but still justice requires enforcement. And that, that fire is a refining fire, not a, as opposed to a destructive fire. That's well said, too. It is a refining fire. How do you explain to a rape victim that God did not want to violate the law of liberty so her rapist was not prevented in his act? But there's lots of stories, testimonies of people have been, who have been miraculously saved from harm. Cases where people were intent on harming them, but they, there was an obvious miraculous intervention. What do you say? But there, there's, there's several problems with the question, I will just tell you. What's the first problem? Do you remember um, Jesus um, restoring Peter on the, on the beach, three times says to Peter, um, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Then feed my sheep. Remember this? And soon as he says that, what does Peter ask Jesus? What about him? What about John? <laughs> what about John? Immediately. And, and Jesus says, what does it matter to you if, I, if John lives until I come again? Are you going to do what I've called you to do? See, what did Peter immediately try to do? Uh, fulfill the purpose God called him for or to compare what he's being called for with somebody else? Okay? And, and this is what this question's about. It's comparing my experience with somebody else's experience. That's what it's doing. Rather than saying, Regardless of my experience, so I've had, I've had many patients who've come to me over the years who have had very traumatic childhoods with, with, with dysfunctional parents, parents who were quite abusive. What was the option for them? I mean, existentially. I don't mean for the child. The child had no power to do anything. I mean, I mean if we think this, we can sit on God's throne, what is the option? This is where you get into reality. The only way that individual, any way you, any individual in this room, the only way you exist as the person you are is for the two people who are your biologic parents to conceive you. And on one particular month of your mother's cycle. If they would have missed that month, you would never have been born. You would have never been born. They would have had a sibling of yours in your place. Get your mind around this. This is reality. This is how God built us. Okay? So, so if you really think about this, the only option from an existential sovereign overview is I allow you to be born to these people who are very dysfunctional, and then I intervene with grace through your life to save you and heal you and re- give you eternal life free from the encumbrances of this world, or I don't allow you to be born at all. Because you, this unique person, can only be born to these two people. You following me on this? And so this comparison thing is always a trap. It's always a trap. The question is not, why did, and if you want to answer the question, well, why did he intervene sometimes? Because there's always a greater purpose. Sometimes he intervenes because of the promise. No temptation has taken you, but that which is common to man. But God will not allow you to be tempted more than you're able. With the temptation, provide a way of escape. Some individuals cannot tolerate certain things and would overwhelm and destroy their, their souls or minds. Wow. Yeah. Others can tolerate it and be delivered from it. Wow. And so he delivers some, and he doesn't deliver others for that reason alone. That's not the only reason. Others, he allows to go through difficult times like Job. Look at Job. He went through difficult times not because Job needed it for personal development, but because... 
Think about the millions down through the ages who have been blessed by the story of Job and the angels in heaven who needed to see this. Sometimes we are called as a, to the witness stand of the universe to say what have God is, the truth about who God is and what, what, how his systems work. Job says, even if God were to kill me, I'm not gonna break trust. I still trust him. There must be a reason for that. It's okay. If my life will serve your cause in some way to bring glory to your kingdom and advance the cause and bring an end to this world of sin, my life's in your hands. That's the kind of faith he had. And the story of Job was presented to prepare the way for Jesus because he also greatly suffered. Yes. And to show that a great sufferer could be a good person. Yes. Well said. Thank you for that. Yes. And so, so, and then sometimes there are miracles. The miracle of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It's true. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego personally benefited from that miracle. There's no question. They benefited. But was the miracle for their benefit? That's not why it was given. It was not because they would have lost faith and been eternally lost and they needed the miracle to keep them from rebelling. No, they would have died faithful like Stephen and be resurrected. That miracle was for Nebuchadnezzar and for all the people who've read about it since. And this is when you find miracles happening, sometimes for the individual because without that intervention, it would destroy them. Many times it's for the other people that will be blessed by being aware of or seeing or witnessing that. Like the death of Stephen benefiting Paul. Yes, so there you go. So Stephen did not get the miraculous intervention, neither did Peter, who's crucified upside down, or Paul, who gets beheaded. They didn't get miraculously intervened upon. Okay, can you please speak to ways to help reduce or heal adult repetitive night terrors in someone suffering with complex PTSD? I'm glad for a simple question. (laughs) No, it's an actually very interesting, and it is a a complex question. Uh, First off, I'm going to separate night terrors from from the PTSD. Night terrors are a sleep disorder that happens in non-dream sleep. Non-dream sleep. Dream sleep, REM sleep, end of the sleep cycle. So when you go into sleep, light stage, slow wave, deep sleep, rapid eye movement, dream sleep, wake up all night long through these cycles. The slow wave sleep... Is, uh, is a, you can have disorders in that for, part of your sleep. Common ones you may have heard of are sleepwalking. Somebody who's sleepwalking is up and moving or sleep eating. I have a few patients who've gotten up and eat in the middle of the night and they're asleep while they do it. If you actually have to bring, so this is, this is generally the slow wave sleep and you're up and doing active things. Night terrors are a form of this type of sleep disorder. They're screaming, they're yelling, they're, they're, they, they look, their eyes are open, they look awake, they're not awake. And so the way you treat that in real time was the family member to simply keep safe, comfort, and get them back down. You don't try to wake them up from this. They're still in a sleep state, okay? Uh, so PTSD, trauma, anxiety, certain drugs, stimulants, other things can, in, for those who are genetically vulnerable to do this, can increase the frequency of this. This is also neurodevelopmental. Children, I think it's around 10% of children have this. of adults have this. So most children outgrow it. And it's just neurodevelopmental in this type of sleep terrors. But but if you have this vulnerability and you also have high stress and PTSD, then you might get more manifestations of the the night terrors. But most people with PTSD do not have night terrors. They have um, trauma and recurring dreams from the trauma that they have distressing and recurring dreams. Night terrors they don't remember. Uh, The distressing dreams you do remember. 
And, and that's a different process. That's happening in REM sleep rather than in the slow-wave sleep. So it's two places in the sleep cycle that these two different symptomologies are having. And, and you treat them differently. Uh, if, if somebody is having a lot of trauma sleep, you can intervene with certain pharmaceuticals that can decrease the amount of time in REM sleep so that the nightmares get better. And I've, I've prescribed some of those meds. But um, the ultimate treatment for, for PTSD is resolution of the trauma. And trauma cannot be resolved by medication. Trauma is not the event. The event is over. It can't be changed. The, the, reason, the reason they p- keep reliving it, either in intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, um, emotions, or dreams, is because there's some aspect of what they went through that their, if you want to call their mind, their heart, their sense of self is not at peace with. There's some part of them that's going, no, I can't accept this. This is wrong. This should have never happened. This is wrong. They're, they're not at peace with the events. And because they're not at peace with the events, they're emotionally distraught or distressed by it. And so their mind keeps bringing up the events over and over again in all these various forms to say to the self, deal with it. You've got an unresolved emotional wound. You need to heal it. And that's why they keep reliving it and recurring. The problem is if they recur and live a lot, a lot of this, um, then the, the, the way we are, we are built, our brain makes new pathways and then the person can actually work on resolving the trauma, but they have habituated themselves to have certain behavioral or emotional problems now because they've done this so long. And so it's, it's, I will say if somebody's got PTSD and this type of stuff, it's treatable. We treat this at Honey Lake Clinic where I'm the medical director. We have a lot of patients come with complex PTSD. And this is resolvable and treatable. But the PTSD component really requires good psychotherapy to work through and come to a new internal self-story. Never, never deny and never lie. We don't tell people platitudes. They actually have to come to an, a, a reality-based understanding of the events and who they are in the aftermath. Concerning the first resurrection at Christ's return, our characters and individualities which we develop are stored in heaven and are downloaded into the new body hardware. Do you think that our pathways of thought, views of God, and remaining defects of character are healed instantly as a result of our new hardware, cerebral structure, uh, changes, uh, changes or process? Okay, so they're asking, do we, do we come up with all this stuff already pre-programmed? We come up with absolute perfect motives of heart. Love for God, love for others, trust, processors. I can't imagine how fun it will be to have a processor that works faster than the one I have now. I mean, aren't you going to be excited for that? Okay. (laughs) No, no, no. We are all pygmies compared to Adam and Eve and Eden. I mean, seriously, what what the Lord has in store for us, it's going to be incredible. I actually think we're going to have so many... um, and I don't have time to go into this, but when you start linking scripture with things in quantum mechanics, you can actually see some of the powers that Adam gave up and Satan took over that we're going to recover. Like um, Adam as the given, given dominion over the whole planet, I am certain had powers of telekinesis where he could move things with his mind. He could walk on water like Jesus walked on water. Uh, when, when Satan, who usurped his authority on this planet, came to Jesus and tempted him, do you recognize that a moment later they're on the top of the temple? They did not take an Uber. (laughs) No, get your mind around that. Satan took Jesus and they didn't use Jesus' power to get there. Okay? I have no doubt that Adam had the ability to teleport anywhere he wanted on this planet. We will have those abilities again. Okay? And it will be directed by the the electrical neurocognitive energies that we uh, have given to us in our new humanity when we're glorified. We will radiate light like Moses did coming off the mountain, and that is not combustion. It's some other type of energy that we are currently pygmies and and barely able to interact with. 
You were about to say something? There's other Jewish non can, can, uh, canonical writings that also refer to at the fall of Adam, Adam saying things that he missed was not being able to listen and see the choirs of heaven while he was here on earth. So, yeah, no, so I, I, think, I think there's a tremendous things. Pardon? You're on the right path. Yeah. So we will come up with perfect hardware with capacities beyond our ability to imagine. I have not seen nor uh, ear heard nor into the heart of man what God has in store for us. But we will still have many, many things to learn, but we won't have any rebelliousness. So it would be very much like Gabriel, who never rebelled, when, when Lucifer began presenting in the, his distortions, Gabriel had a lot of questions. It's like he didn't know the answers to some of this stuff. He never even thought about it before, but he had no rebellion in his heart. Okay, we will have lots of things that we won't know that we will want answers for when we come out. So we're not going to have a, a data set download. We'll have purity of heart, mind, and character when we come up out of the, this is my understanding. Yeah. No carnal nature to tempt, no fear and selfishness, no guilt and shame. Since Jesus, the Messiah, was the word who became flesh and dwelt among us, and, and in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and since all things were made by him, without him nothing is made and has been made, and since it is in him that we live and move or have our being, um, is it barking up the wrong tree to assume that we are all alive inside the mind of Christ? Again, words have meaning. It depends what you mean. You know, God is an infinite being who created time and he lives outside of time. The past, present, and future to him outspread. And God's, so you could say, because he, he lives at all point in time. By the way, I was just reading something recently on quantum mechanics and light and photons. It's, it's a fascinating read. Um, but physicists believe that when you, uh, if it, we can never attain the speed of light. And the faster you move, the more heavy you get. Gravity improves, and so it slows you down. But if you could attain the speed of light, you actually live outside of time. So, so t- uh, light exists, exists at the same speed at all places and all times. It's very interesting stuff. Just as, and, then, and then you understand that, you go back to the New Testament, God lives in unapproachable light. What's the reference? Jesus is the... Uh, I, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Okay. Okay. Uh, you can ask me afterwards, I can look it up for you. Um, Jesus lives in, uh, Jesus is the, is the, in Jesus was the, uh, was life and that life was the light of men. Okay. And that Jesus is the light that lightens all men. So these metaphors of light and what light actually does in the physical world are actually quite fascinating, but God lives outside of time as I understand it. And in that sense, God already is rejoicing in what we would call our future in an earth made new because he lives in the future. Okay. This is, Yeah. But some people get uncomfortable with this idea, well, that means we're not free, we're not making choices. No. Uh, if, if, if you understand how foreknowledge works, and this is how I understand foreknowledge works, God foreknows, but he doesn't forecause. And anything in God's book of foreknowledge only gets there when you choose it. Your choice puts what God knows into his knowledge. For your life, that is. That makes sense? So anyway, that's the last question. Let's close with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, with the truth you've given us, and may we fulfill the purpose you've called for us at this time in history to take this message of your true character and government to the world that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen.